Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there, and this is Stuff You Should Know about vile racist jerks. <laughs> Boo. Boo me? Not you. You're okay. not a vile racist jerk. <laughs> I still my check. Yeah, so Chuck, do you remember when we did our two-part episode on The Simpsons? <clears throat> and one of the first things I said was, like, I didn't want to record because all I wanted to do is sit around and research The Simpsons for the rest of my life. Sure. I felt basically the opposite way <laughs> about researching the Klan. Like, I didn't want to record because I didn't want to research the Klan anymore. Yeah. Not it wasn't fun. a fun one. No. <laughs> Well, here's my personal uh, history here uh, in regards to the Klan is oh – and, and I'll, I'll, this will be peppered throughout a little bit because I grew up in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Oh, that sounds familiar. Which is very uh, – uh, it, it, you know, some of the early days of the second wave of the Klan, which, you know, we'll get to all this garbage in this episode. But um, Stone Mountain was kind of one of the large national seats – and one of the uh, leaders of the Klan in Stone Mountain had kids or it was either kids or grandkids that went – I guess it had to be grandkids that went to my elementary school, the, wow. Ven- the Venables. And I was like – you know, I heard about the Venables and I knew about their story and that his granddad was the Grand Wizard and like it scared the crap out of me. Rightfully um, so. I was scared. And then I got older and I was like, these are just dumb – cosplaying rednecks <laughs> nice. and then i got a little older still and i was like well that's not fair either and i tried to start in my life look at things through the lens of minority peoples uh-huh. uh, even though you can't you know as a as a white man but you can do your best to <laughs> walk a mile in someone's shoes and see what it might be like mm-hmm. then i was like i can't dismiss it as rednecks cosplaying because they killed people and lynched people and it was a fear, uh, a feared group to black people and, and, you know, all kinds of other minorities, as we'll see as they as they kind of progressed. But uh, I, I felt it was dismissive to say they're just a bunch of dumb rednecks and don't give them that power. Uh, so, you know, it, it's just interesting to sort of go through that evolution as a kid growing up in the South, who no doubt in my lineage and ancestry have horrible things that happened in the Deep South that mm-hmm. – I had to rectify as like, you know, just because I'm related to great, 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 great grandparents who probably did awful things Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that I'm that person or, you know. No, not at all. Not at all. You certainly aren't that person at all, I can attest. But you have to come to terms with it as someone who is the opposite of those people. (laughs) For sure. And I think it is wise of you and and, uh, very thoughtful of you to be like, no, I can't just, you know. Use, I guess, white privilege to dismiss the Klan because it does kind of infringe on, like, the impacts that they've had on on people of color in the United States, for sure. I think that's very insightful. At the same time, yes, the Klan are dumb redneck cosplayers. <laughs> They're just ones who will also get whipped up into into violence and— yeah. um, carry out horrific acts. So they're dumb redneck cosplayers who you really have to keep an eye on and then break the back of as an organization by putting them in prison whenever they do something like that or start to. Yeah, and as we see through their history, depending on when it was and which sort of iteration, because there's there's been at least three, 
some were more violent and dangerous than others, mm-hmm. and some were sort of like cosplaying rednecks. Yeah. Um, not to, you know, of course, that doesn't excuse it. It's just like a fun social club or anything like that. But right. um, it, it is fairly interesting, but I'm ready to be done with this as well. So let's let's do it. Yeah, well, the thing that kind of strikes me about the Klan the most is they— the Klan enjoys its largest popularity when America's feeling it's most racist. Yeah. And usually America feels it's most ra- racist at times when um, the the rights of minorities or anybody who's not basically white Protestants are being advanced yeah. in society. It's not an accident. <clears throat> right. Um, but then the Klan always, always oversteps because America may be racist and America might be, I can't even say white. America is definitely based on white supremacism um, or white supremacy and enforcing that. The, but the, 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 the taste for violence and the willingness to, like, kill people of color just for being people of color mm-hmm. is not a mainstream thing, fortunately. So the Klan has always been on the fringe and always will be on the fringes. It's just hopefully eventually society will learn its lesson, like, you know— advancing the rights of people of color doesn't mean that there has to be some spasm of anti-minority sentiment that inevitably leads to violence carried out by groups like the Klan. I really hope we get to that point um, rather than just keep existing trapped in this cycle, you know? And I think we will. I think we are approaching that eventually. I don't know when it will be, but I I feel like with each— of these cycles that we go through, there's less and less people who react horribly the next time or the next time or the next time so that eventually that reaction will just kind of fizzle out. That's my hope. Yeah, and it's also interesting. Uh, I watched a documentary. No, it wasn't really a doc- It's sort of like a, a several-part news show from this uh, British um, – might have been a BBC crew that – about the modern clan just from a couple of years ago during mm-hmm. like the Ferguson – uh, uproar in Missouri, and he went un- not undercover because he was um, a British guy who was interviewing him. He went he went in deep uh, with the Klan there for seven months, and it's interesting to see the just the scattered ideology, and that kind of is a bit of a hallmark of the Klan period through their history. Is it seems like there's never been a very codified thing of this is who we are because there's mm-hmm. people in this documentary that are like. You know, three of the members were arrested for uh, plotting to kill a black man, and the people they talked to, they're like, whoa, 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 they're out, man. We're not into that. We don't want to commit violence against black people, and we're not even bigoted. We're just a superior race <laughs> who who are white separatists. Uh, right. But we don't want to, you know, we might burn a cross for our ceremonies, but we're not doing bombings and lynchings, and we're not down with that at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also get the feeling that, Behind closed doors, they're probably like, hey, I wish those guys would have been able to carry that murder out. Right, and that that seems to have been a transition that kind of went in the 70s, started in the 70s, I believe, where there's like a a different public face to the Klan where they tried different, like, well, okay, well, that everybody hates the Klan. What if we, what if we explain it like this? Right. What if we put it like this? And society's like, no, that's <laughs> nice try. Yeah. It's not going to work. All right. Uh, should we get into this and in the origins? Yeah. So, so like you said, there's been three iterations of the Klan. <clears throat> this, the first iteration of the Klan started out as they think 
basically a social club made up of um, disgruntled Confederate veterans in Pulaski, Tennessee in 1866. And this group of veterans got together at a time where um, there was a real trend, a craze basically for secret societies in the 19th century. Um, apparently in the the 1890s up to the 1930s is called the golden age of fraternalism, where something like a third of American men were members of a secret society or something based on like actual real ancient secret societies like the Knights Templar or the Rosicrucians. These were just kind of fake ones that gave you a reason to like leave the house on Tuesdays and Thursdays and go like, <laughs> yeah. you know, have whiskey down at the, the Moose yeah, Lodge or the Elk Lodge. You kind of get that feeling, yeah. And groups like the Moose and the Elks and the Knights of Columbus, um, they all grew out of that. And in fact, Woodmen of the World Insurance um, is called that. It's kind of a weird name if you think about it. But Woodmen of the World um, was a secret society from the 19th century, and they would sell their members insurance policies. And that's where that insurance came from. So this is kind of like the context of where the Ku Klux Klan originally came from in the 19th century, this crazer trend for secret societies. Yeah, and by all accounts, it was started on Christmas Eve, uh, like you said, in Pulaski in 1865 by six men, uh, Calvin Jones, Richard Reed, Frank McCord, uh, John Kennedy, and John uh, Kessler, I think. Mm -hmm. And then, believe it or not, the final guy's name was uh, Jim Crow. No. James Crow. No. (laughs) No. Yeah, in Pulaski, Tennessee, and um, they uh, they were sort of based on this one of those secret groups called the Sons of Malta, uh-huh. but it seems like it was more inspired by because they weren't around by the time the Civil War ended, but they definitely sort of um, kind of cribbed some stuff from the from the Maltans as far as uh, and this is the whole thing with the secret societies like outfits and costumes and Mm -hmm. rites and initiations and dumb names of leadership that you make up. It's all a big part of it. Uh, I I, I have never understood the desire. Me either. And and not just obviously the Klan (laughs) because clearly not interested in that. But any fraternal group like that, I just – including fraternities in college, I just – I never got it. Yeah. Um, that Sons of Malta you mentioned seemed to have been directly impactful. Um, I don't know if there were members who were who were from the Sons of Malta or how they heard of it, but the Sons of Malta and then another group called the Ku Klux Adelphan. And both of them seem to have been party crews or crews from Mardi Gras in New Orleans. And then the Sons of Malta somehow made their way up to Boston. And that's where they really kind of get, uh, got hold or got popular, I guess. But neither one of those were were racist groups from what I could tell. Um, and from also what I could tell, the Ku Klux Klan wasn't necessarily intended to be a racist, terrorist, political organization, at least at first. But um, shortly after they formed in 1865-66, the federal government passed the Reconstruction Acts. Um, And Reconstruction definitely deserves its own episode. Really want to do one or two on Reconstruction at some point. But when they they passed that um, act, that um, that kind of changed or gave focus to this what may have been like just kind of a um, a, a group of racist people and turned them into a 
racist political terrorist organization. Now they had something to do besides meet at the, the Moose Lodge, and that was to enforce white supremacy in the Deep South through acts of violence and intimidation and terror techniques. Um, and that was the first incarnation of the Klan, and they spread really quick from Tennessee down to um, Georgia and other neighboring states, thanks in part to personal visits for organizing by a guy named uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, a, a Confederate general who was not a great guy. Yeah, he was uh, – there are a lot of complications with that guy. We'll, we'll get to him in a sec. But um, the name uh, KKK or Ku Klux Klan, um, they think might have – and there's no – again, it's it's been such a sort of willy-nilly organization as mm-hmm. far as having a national sort of codified presence that there's not even like a, a website that I saw that you can go to. It's all regional. Man, and, I'll bet those are some terrible websites. <laughs> they're pretty bad. Comic Sans everywhere. Yeah, they're they're pretty bad. When there's like a black background and like pink uh, right. fonts and stuff like that. Spewing racist bigotry and ideology. And, oh, yeah, my God. It's pretty bad. Yeah. I wanted to like throw my laptop out the window at one point. <laughs> um, but they think it might have derived from the Greek word uh, kiklos, K-Y-K-L-O-S. Mm-hmm which was uh, basically denotes um, what people thought were like the natural cycles of government or types of government yeah. that a civilization could have. Which is pretty haughty if you think about it for the KKK. <laughs> yeah. I mean, of course. <laughs> political philosophy that dates back to the the 3rd century yeah. BCE. That's, to the Greeks. It's really something. Uh, but Kuklos is what it, um, K-U-K-L-O-S, mm-hmm. is what it was sort of translated as in, in modern, and well, not the modern era, but back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, clan with a K, like what I saw was it was originally Ku Klux, one word, and then clan with a C. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they think that may have come from maybe um, Scottish clans. They play Scottish music sometimes yeah. at their rallies, but that's not affirmed either. Uh, but eventually, I think that C was replaced with a K. It became KKK, and these lodges started popping up um, all over right after the Civil War because kind of like you said, once um, a minority gets a little bit of uh, freedom, uh, there's a bit of an uprising in clan membership, and that's what happened from the first iteration is like there we have these enslaved people that are now free. We need to basically intimidate them into feeling like they still have no freedoms, even though the law says different. Right. So one of the first things they did was, um, you know, when when – Reconstruction came along and all of a sudden there were, you know, black people in the South could hold political office or be judges or all this. Like this was like flipping a switch as far as the South is concerned. Um, and it, it, like I said, it laser focused like the, the aims of the Ku Klux Klan and that they now took up uh, an intimidation and terrorism campaign against black people in the South, against Republicans in the South. The Republicans at the time were a much different party than they are today and that they were into the idea of big government to support and enforce social justice. Um, and then years later, around the turn of the last century, um, Williams Jennings Bryant was a candidate who uh, was a Democrat who basically ran on the Republican platform of big government to enforce social justice. And then later on, it was cemented by FDR. It was a big kind of transition or, or um, um, switch, basically, of ideologies between the parties. Um, but at the time, if you were a Republican, you were probably, if you were in the South, you were probably for um, 
equal rights for black citizens. And you were a target of their intimidation campaigns as well. Uh, Big time, because not only were they kind of battling these politicians, but um, voter intimidation was a very real thing. Uh, and voter suppression, mm-hmm. and they would um, they would murder people, um, like hundreds, maybe thousands of people uh, in the South, especially Louisiana um, reports ahead of the 1868 election um, where the, they murdered people for intimidation and literally to keep them from voting. Yeah, dude, there was one town called Opelousas, um, Louisiana, a town of 25,000. So it was pretty big. Um, it was the county seat of the parish. I can't remember what parish. But in two weeks— 200 people were murdered around the 1868 election. 200. That's 14 people a day in this town of 25,000 people, um, all because of terrorism carried out by the KKK. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, Ed uh, helped us put this together, and Ed is keen to point out, and I think we should too, is that a lot of uh, what the Klan has always tried to do is uh, is lead their groups by fear. And you still see that today, not only through the Klan, but other groups like fear of you know, that the immigrant's going to take your job or fear of this, fear of that. Right. Yeah. And back then it was fear of um, these enslaved people that are now free rising up, you know, and, and getting revenge. And that didn't happen. Like, even though slavery happened, like once black Americans earned their freedom, they did not all of a sudden say, oh, yeah, well, payback time. Right. We're angry. We're going to come after you. They were happy to be freed and just to, to, to try and live as regular people with rights in society. And that wasn't the message that the Klan was putting out. They were yeah. like, you need to be afraid of them, even though there are no accounts of that happening. It was just black people trying to be regular, normal people. Right. And the the other problem with that kind of thing is, is like when somebody does stuff like this, when they carry out a terror campaign, um, it makes people wonder like, geez, well, what did the other people do to deserve this? Well, the other people didn't do anything to deserve this. And that's that's what's called the false balance or balance fallacy, where the idea that there's, you know, there's problems on both sides or there's good people on both sides. It's, it's like, no, sometimes one side is the problem. Uh, basically 100% of the problem. And I think that was really important of Ed to, to point out and for us to point out too, that there was nothing that the the Klan was defending against except white supremacy and black, black suppression, the suppression of rights among black people. That yeah. was it. It's as despicable as it sounds. There was nothing gallant or good about it. There was nothing honorable about it. And in fact... They were so violent and so criminal and so despicable that within three years of their founding, the grand wizard of the KKK, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who we um, mentioned earlier, issued his one and only basically executive orders, grand wizard, saying we have to disband and burn all of our stuff because this has gotten out of hand. That's how violent they had become and how despicable their acts had been. Yeah. Forrest Gump's namesake. Yeah. Um, he was, uh, like I said, he was a pretty controversial, remains a controversial dude, uh, in that he was one of the generals of the Confederacy and, um, he was in charge, uh, when the Fort Pillow massacre happened, which was, yeah. uh, something we can get into in detail, maybe in a short stuff, maybe, but, um, essentially, you know, hundreds of largely black soldiers who had given up and surrendered, uh, were just massacred, uh, on this day at Fort Pillow. And, um, 
he was known as a brilliant general, uh, the Wizard of the Saddle, which is what he was called because he was a cavalry guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that later became, you know, they kind of uh, ganked that for the clan as far as the Grand Wizard. <laughs> they kind of stole that from there. Ganked. Um, but he uh, he seemed to be a vile man, but then later in life, like you said, um, became disillusioned with the clan. Some people said it was just because he didn't think they were organized enough. Some people said it was because he thought they got too violent. But in Memphis, late in life, he gave this big speech about, um, you know, basically trying to hold up the black man and give them jobs and put them in positions of uh, important positions in our government and to make them doctors and lawyers. So I don't know if it was a change of heart. There's been a lot of uh, controversy since since then about, like, should we honor this guy or, you know— or talk about like his entire life up until that moment. No, I think it, it's it, like I, he he deserves to have like his like it all spread out on the table. But I feel like once you oversee like a massacre of of unarmed black soldiers, came over. And oversee like a in a white supremacist terrorist group, that's pretty tough to come back from. No, even of though I mean it is definitely worth noting, and I think fair to note that he did have a. At least something of a change of heart, at least publicly. I saw that he yeah. wrote to, uh, I think, the governor of Tennessee or somewhere and offered to help destroy um, white vigilantes who were harassing um, black citizens because he thought it was uncalled for. So, yeah, he was a a, 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 a unusual person over the span of his life, but he still did some pretty horrible stuff. Of course. And this, you know, this pops up anytime there's— um, a debate over whether they should strip the name from this or that, you know, because there's plenty, Dude, of, plenty of stuff named for him. There is a high school in Jacksonville, Florida, that was named Nathan F. Nathan B. Forrest uh, High School until 2014. Yeah, 2014. There was a, a high school named after the basically the founder of the Ku Klux Klan in Jacksonville, Florida. They should just name all the high schools in Florida Tom Petty High School. Is he from Florida? Yeah, he's from Gainesville. I didn't know that. Yeah, big big huh. time uh, music scene down there back then. Oh, okay, what happened to it? The music scene? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe there still is one. Who else came out of Gainesville at that time? Uh, the Don Felder, the guitar player for the Eagles, was Tom Petty's guitar teacher. Mm. Uh, and then, um, like, Leonard Skinner hung out in Jacksonville. And okay. I think the Allman Brothers, they were making guys, but they hung out down there, too. It was a scene. Okay. Should we take a break? Sure. (laughs) All right, let's take a break. I didn't think Tom Petty and and the Allman Brothers would make an appearance in the Klan episode. Yeah. But they did, and we'll be back right after to talk about the Enforcement Acts. The Enforcement Acts. Yes. Uh, this is basically when the federal government stepped up uh, starting in 1870 and <clears throat> said, you know what? We can't count on these states, especially in the South. And and we should point out, and Ed, Ed makes a, a good point of pointing out that, like, there was racism all over the country, mm-hmm. always has been. There have been Klan groups all over the country. But in the South, it was 
in the government. It was in the courts. It was in the school systems like it was uh, nowhere else in the country. Right. So the, the, the federal government said we can't count on these southern states to do the right thing and to have real investigations and prosecute people and to protect uh, black citizens. So we're going to pass the Enforcement Acts that basically says uh, we can go in there and we can kind of take care of business on our own if we have to. Yeah, and take care of business they did. Um, General uh, Grant, Ulysses Grant, who was then President Grant, <clears throat> had an attorney general named Amos Ackerman. This guy's awesome. He is awesome. He's one of the heroes of the story. He doesn't Ack- even have a Wikipedia page. He doesn't? No. That's pretty lame, Wikipedia. It's bad. He's a Georgia boy, too. Yeah, yeah, he is. So um, this guy uh, ended up the attorney general under Grant, and he basically used everything at his disposal from forming, um, like, uh, basically the the prototype of the FBI yeah. to um, to getting federal troops and getting martial law declared down in South Carolina to oversee the um, presidential election down there. Um like all sorts of different stuff. Everything he had, he would throw at the Klan and ultimately kind of broke the back of that first Klan. That combined with um, uh, Bedford Forest. Um, I don't know why you have to say both of those names, but you just kind of do. I don't know. Um, that, combined with his executive order to disband, like the Klan, the first Klan went away very, very quickly, actually. Yeah, and it's hard to tell how big it was at its first peak. Uh, some people say maybe a half a million people, but like you said, it faded out pretty quickly. Um, and you know, we'll talk about when the Klan fades out. It, you know, it doesn't really go anywhere as far as these people go. Right. It's not like everyone all of a sudden was awesome and not racist. Uh, it just means the formal Klan just lacked membership. Basically, I don't know. I think I think when. When suddenly, like the for, the the federal government, and like you know, maybe your senator or your representative, or you hear the president talking smack about this group that you know you used to think was pretty cool, but now all of a sudden you realize that the rest of the country thinks you're a backward dummy for looking up to these Klan members. It can kind of it can kind of make people self reflect a little bit, you know. So hmm. I wonder how many people do change their minds or have historically over over the course of this. Not necessarily like, well, I'm not racist anymore, but I think that that's, that's a possibility that somebody can reflect like that. Or at the very least, the next time they're not going to participate or agitate or, or join in, you know? I yeah. don't know. I don't know. I saw, did you see that meme of the dude in, I think... Indiana or Illinois, I can't remember. He, he's, I believe, in a wheelchair, and he's at a Black Lives Matter rally. And he's holding a sign that says, I'm sorry I'm late. I had a lot to learn. And he apparently was, I don't know if he was racist, but he was certainly not in favor of Black Lives Matter. And I guess started reading about it and looking into it and doing his research and had a, a complete change of heart and showed up at one of their rallies in support of them, which was pretty cool. Have you seen that? I have not seen that. So it is I mean, it can happen. Like, people's sentiments about this kind of stuff can change. And I feel like when people are like, oh, oh, I'm in favor of of keeping other human beings down for really no reason whatsoever except they don't look like me, I feel like that that's like a – there's a lot of room for improvement that can happen um, in that that sense, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sure individuals have changed like that. I wish it was en masse. Um, 
there were other violent racist groups when the Klan was not as popular during that period. Mm-hmm. Um, they just didn't have uh, they didn't have that sort of unified um, look. <laughs> well, <laughs> so we'll let's get talk. To. Yeah, let's talk about that look if you're if you're ready to. Do you want to? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you can thank D.W. Griffith and Thomas Dixon Jr. for that. Yeah, because prior to this, the the Klan um, did not really look like what you would think. They they wore masks and hoods and, um, you know, disguises, and they tried to disguise their voice. Apparently, sometimes they would pretend that they were the ghosts of Confederate soldiers coming to terrorize black families, um, fooling absolutely no one. But they they didn't wear necessarily what you would think of as like the Klan today, and and like you said, that strictly came from D.W. Griffith and I guess uh, Dixon, Thomas Dixon, to a lesser extent. But Griffith like really put it up there for everybody to see with the Birth of a Nation. Yeah, Birth of a Nation was a movie based on a play that was based on a book from Thomas Dixon Jr. He published the Klansman with a C colon. Mm-hmm. Uh, a historical romance of the Ku Klux Klan, and uh, where they were depicted as heroic, heroic sort of noble Christian warriors, and that became a play that had was a little bit more popular. Mm-hmm. And then D. W. Griffith based the movie on that play, um, and it was, you know, this is where you saw crosses burning, and this is where you saw those white pointed hoods. And horses with robes on them, those poor, poor horses, they have no idea I know. what they're doing. It makes me Let's feel terrible. Let's not drag the horses into this, shall we? No, I wish they wouldn't. Uh, but, you know, what we know as sort of the look of the Klan was fully put forth by D.W. Griffith on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of curious because I know he was a huge, huge name in Hollywood and a pioneer in Hollywood and was a founding partner of uh, United Artists with Chaplin and Mary Pickford and I think Douglas Fairbanks maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was curious about both those guys. Like were they super racist or was this just a movie to them? And uh, Dixon was supposedly really racist, um, although he supposedly denounced bigotry in the wake of this sort of new clan that was created. I had a harder time finding out what D.W. Griffith was all about. Mm -hmm. He never apologized for anything. Mm -hmm. And he seems to have sort of escaped scrutiny. Uh, in some ways. so In his lifetime? I think so, but I'm not really sure because I didn't have time to really do a deep dive into whether or not like he believed this stuff or he was like, I'm going to make a salacious movie that's going to be super controversial right. and get banned and get me yeah. a lot of attention. But the, the you know, so whether his heart was in it or not, the impact that his movie had was oh, yeah. just astounding. It was like, imagine if when Star Wars came out, all of a sudden like... Um, Jedi schools popped up in real life and like they would form together and go out and and run for office as like Jedis, basically. Sweet. We need a third party. Right, yeah, the Jedi party. But imagine if those Jedis were like virulent racists who were um, dedicated to suppressing the rights of minorities. What do you think about that? That's much less good. It's much less good. And um, that's, yeah, that's kind of what happened. That's a good point. Yeah. But based on this movie, it was a popular movie that kicked off what's what's considered the second wave or second incarnation of the Ku Klux Klan and gave us all of that, the the symbolism, the grandiose um, look and feel and just kind of like gave it this almost legend that really didn't exist because the first Klan was never like that. They were a bunch of hooded... Um, 
murderous thugs who would ride around on horseback at night and set people's houses on fire. They didn't look anything like that. Um, So, yeah, you can lay, you know, the resurgence in interest of the Klan almost squarely at the feet of D.W. Griffith, and then only because it wasn't as popular to a lesser extent Tom Dixon's feet. Not Tom Dixon, the great, great lighting designer. Tom Dixon, the racist author. Yes, Thomas Dixon Jr., I think, right? Yeah. Uh, and in fact, uh, Birth of a Nation, a part of it was filmed in the neighborhood. I lived in L.A. in Los Feliz right there. Oh, where yeah. uh, Remember where we shot the driving around stuff for the Toyota commercial? <laughs> yeah. Can I just say one of my favorite <laughs> I know memories what you're say. <laughs> is while we were driving <laughs> around. Yes, you didn't look to the right, and you started to pull through a crosswalk, and this lady with her husband and, like, three kids starts, like, I think smacked the hood of the Prius that we were filming in oh, and, like, yelled at you, and you, like, yelled back at her and shook your fist. <laughs> like, you, you got into, like, I a shouting match. It, you did you did in every way except physically <laughs> shaking your fist. But you got in, like, a shouting match with some pedestrian while we were filming a Toyota commercial. It was uh, beautiful. It, it, it wasn't quite a shouting match. It was very brief. She she way <laughs> overreacted. So oh, totally. No, no, I'm not saying you were in the wrong, but it was just— Well, it reminded me of everything I hated about living in L.A. I think yeah. in that one moment was, yeah. like, how bad this lady overreacted. <laughs> yeah. That was fun, though. That was a great, great memory. Yeah, but uh, Birth of a Nation was filmed, like, right down the street from there, part of it— um, the what my favorite movie theater in L.A. The Vista was right, right on this corner, mm-hmm. and uh, also the movie theater that doubled as Detroit for True Romance for the Karate Kung Fu uh, theater at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like right out there in front of that, it's this big like convergence of five streets, and apparently like some of the huge like marching scenes from Birth of a Nation were filmed right there. Oh boy! Anyway. Um, this second birth of the Klan, uh, a lot of it can be credited also to uh, the actions of William J. Simmons, who was inspired from the movie and in 1915 went to the top of Stone Mountain here in Georgia and burned a cross. And inspired by a movie. Yeah. Well, it's and, really and, important and, to get that across. And the hate in the previous Klan. Like, sure. You know, it was all still there. Um, but James Venable, who I mentioned earlier, who I went to school with his grandkids, he was a kid on top of the mountain with William Simmons at the time. Oh, yeah? And he was up there, and I think with his uncle. And this was kind of looked at as sort of one of the first meetings of the newly reborn Ku Klux Klan in the 1915s to 20s. Yeah, so in addition to having like a f- much more unified look and um, I guess uh, – Design ethos. Sure. Um, the this version of the clan, the second version of the clan, seemed more organized. At least they were organized enough to actually become a political force, not just in support of you know, um, say the Democrats at the time, or uh, in support of just whatever local judge was known to be a racist and, and, you know, they they would they would support him and intimidate voters against him, they would actually put forth candidates who were members of the Klan and publicly members of the Klan. Um, probably most famously, Robert Byrd, a senator from uh, West Virginia, was a, uh, a Klan member and, like, never backed away from the Klan at, at any point. There were other Southerners, uh, like, from Georgia— uh, who were uh, senators, I mean, uh, who were also Southerners from Georgia, who were from the Klan, some uh, representatives, lots and lots of local officials. And oh, like yeah. the Klan would actually, they became something of a political force as well. 
Yeah, I mean, the local thing is really um, was a big deal because it could be, and you know, politics. Uh, we all get worked up over national politics as well. We should, but if you really want to see a difference in your life day to day, local politics is where it's at. Yep. And you know, county commissions and school boards and boards of directors like that on the local level is really where the clan could get in there on a more low key basis and do a lot of damage. Um, so they, you know, they had official uniforms. Now they had official ranks and titles. Mm-hmm. Um, they were still sort of like, "Hey, we're just a, a fraternal order," um, and that's kind of all we are. But at the same time, they expanded their uh, ethos, and it wasn't just black people anymore. It was uh, they were anti uh, anti Semites. They were anti Catholic. Mm-hmm. They were against communists. They were against anything that wasn't white. And all of this was sort of under the banner of, hey, what we really are, uh, because, you know, they would also, like, try and out pedophiles and stuff like that. What they said they really were were patriots and heroes and good Americans, right. uh, which sounds very familiar these days. It really does. This 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 version of the Klan very much um, reflects the kind of white supremacist BS that you see today in America, where it's—, it's um, very much spread across different groups that that are kind of held together by this thread that, you know, white people are losing ground and they need to make it back up through whatever whatever we need to do. Um, that that really seems to reflect a, a bit. Also, the fact that there are crazy nut jobs in Congress today who hold white supremacist values, yeah. uh, basically publicly, really bears a striking resemblance to the second resurgence of the Klan. Yeah, um, who, I yeah. mean, we should point out again, it like white <clears throat> Christian, white Protestant Christian. Right, that's important. Se- seemed to be the only thing that was uh, that was okay, like anything else, like anti-Catholic, anti-Jew, anti-everything, except white Protestant Christian. And so, like, the, the this was the, the largest uh, popularity or the widest popularity of the Klan. The Southern Poverty Law Center estimates that they may have had around the mid-1920s as many as 4 million members spread across the U.S. And it wasn't just in the South. I mean, there were plenty in industrial cities in the North. There were plenty on the West Coast, plenty in the Midwest. Uh, Indiana um, was known as a stronghold of the Klan. And I read that as many as half a million uh, it had half a million members, which would have been a third of the population of white men in Indiana at the time. Wow. In the 1920s. So you might ask, like, why was everybody in the Klan? Just in the same way that um, the re- Reconstruction gave, uh, I guess, purpose to the Klan. Um, massive waves of immigration that had started in mm-hmm. the late 19th century to the United States was making America generally racist. And they were easily whipped up by things like, you're going to lose your job to all these immigrants. Yeah, like it, it was very much based on local grievances, like whatever the local fear was. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, you're right, that was uh, immigrants coming into the town and taking your jobs or uh, black men marrying white women or mm-hmm. whatever they felt the local thing was that would be most effective at recruiting kind of, uh, was what they kind of honed in on. Um, the mystique of it all was very, I think, intoxicating to a lot of these people yeah, uh, and still is. Uh, in that documentary, it's amazing to see these people two years ago talking about – clearly that's a, an important thing for them. Like 
getting dressed up, meeting together in the woods and burning a cross, riding around at night uh, on your night rides or midnight rides in your car, putting right. up flyers under the under the cloak of darkness. Um, they're it's like cosplay. It really is. They're right. they're <clears throat> playing like they're in some important club. Um, it's interesting that the the women in this documentary, all of them said. Well, you know, this isn't the kind of thing I probably would have been into, but it really improved my marriage when I got on board oh my God. And, uh, and joined. And now my husband and I have something to talk about. We have commonalities. And you hear this and you're just like crawling out of your skin at, at seeing this marriage, which is clearly just, a, you know, a male-dominant marriage. And, uh, you know, but if, you, if, you, if you'll join my clan or if you like my football team, we'll finally have something in common. Right. And I love football. <laughs> so I don't want <laughs> but, to throw football under the bus. But, but so, yeah. So, I mean, it makes sense. Like if you don't have much of an identity or you are looking for something to give your life purpose, like a, a group or a club, especially one that's, you know, in some uh, looked up to by some people, like can really give your life a real shot in the arm, you know, I guess. In good ways. I mean, those, there are so many great clubs right. where people that Go feel like they brother, don't fit in. Go be a big brother, big sister. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it is interesting that so much of it in this documentary at least seems to come from that mystique and that wanting to belong to a group. And I'm just a uh, – uh, this one guy, he was like, you know, I'm just a landscaper and I was just out partying and now now I have focus. Now I have something to do. I've got these brothers. <laughs> Jesus. Really. So um, – one of the one of the things you mentioned was the midnight rides and going out at midnight. And one of the one of the reasons they do that is because the clan has always thrived on anonymity. Like they they don't. I mean, that's that's not to say that they don't show their face in public. Some of them do, but plenty of them don't. And that there's strength in that. Um, and one of the reasons that they would ride at night was because it, it afforded that much more anonymity, even if they're, they weren't particularly uh, anonymous and that, you know, their neighbor who they were terrorizing probably recognized their voice. But <clears throat> the fact that they, their face wasn't shown, there was plausible deniability to that. Well, think, speaking of uh, anonymous, though, yeah. in this documentary, Anonymous outed this one group in Missouri yeah, they got shut down, and they put their all their information on the web. Wow! And it showed a little bit of the video with the guy in the guy fox mask and the uh, the the computerized voice or whatever, right? Saying that you know we're coming after you, we're going to put your names online, uh, and it was it was fairly interesting doing doing God's work. That's actually yeah for real, and that's actually like a traditional anti clan tactic that groups like the NAACP or the um, Anti Defamation League um, ha- used back during this time when the Klan was at its peak popularity in the 1920s. They would bribe people to get their hands on a membership list. They would send in people to infiltrate to get their hands on a membership list, and then they would publish it. And now all of a sudden, that anonymity and the strength that's afforded by the anonymity is gone, and you just broke up a. a clan chapter in your local area because nobody wants to be associated with anymore and they probably have to make some sort of public statement about how yeah. they left, you know, or they, it's all just a, a misunderstanding. They were never part of it. Right. Or you're in fear of losing your job, maybe. But that really helped break up this, this version of the clan in the 1920s. And then, um, 
the federal government, again, if you look at these these successive waves of the Ku Klux Klan, the federal government is the one who steps in to break the back of the Klan. And they did it again, basically using the same playbook from the Enforcement Acts. The IRS in the 1940s, somehow the Klan had gotten tax-exempt status, and the IRS removed it and then sued them for back taxes equal to about $10 million in today's dollars. Um, and the Klan broke up real quick after that. So. Yeah. Get them in the um, pocketbook. That's the yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly what you do. So the the federal government just used a bunch of tactics to basically get rid of the Klan again, and then the Klan went away, and that was that for a while. All right. So should we take another break here? Yes. All right. This well, sucks, man. We're we're this is going to be a long episode. I, I hate giving the Klan a long episode. I know. We'll we'll take a break and uh, maybe we'll just come back and sing uh, protest songs and then call <laughs> it a day. A All right. We'll be right back. If I had a hammer, <laughs> I'd hammer in the morning. I'd hammer in the evening. All, all over, over this, this land. land. We should totally do this. <laughs> I'd hammer out danger. Danger. I'd hammer out the clan. The clan. <laughs> Boo. Outer space. <laughs> what? You get that reference? Is that from, uh, hold on, hold on. Uh, best, no. Uh, uh, which one was that one? <laughs> Cohen Brothers. Oh no, I was thinking of the one, um, the Christopher Guest movie. No, it was from the Cohen Brothers, the uh, folk music movie that is escaping me right now with oh, Oscar um, Isaac. Yeah, yeah. Adam Driver has a really funny part where they're recording in there, and he's just doing background speaking like that. Right. And uh, Timberlake is singing about I going to part, outer space, yeah. and he goes, outer space. What's the one where uh, Harry Shearer ends up joining, like, a folk group at the end? Oh, yeah. Uh, that was uh, Mighty Wind. Mighty Wind, yeah. That yeah, was a good one, Another too. good movie. Uh, that was a good one. All right. Unfortunately, we have to wind this up uh, and talk about the third wave of the Klan, which was the Civil Rights Era. Um, you would think that the Civil Rights Era Klan would be the biggest iteration, but it actually wasn't. Um, they were one of the more dangerous eras because they were very famous for carrying out bombings um, all over the South mainly, yeah. uh, including uh, very sadly the bombing. Uh, in Birmingham, I think there were 138 bombings over like a seven-year period. Yeah. But uh, the bombing in Birmingham where they bombed the church and uh, Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair, um, four young black girls were, were killed. Uh, and if you don't know the story, just go watch the Spike Lee documentary, Four Little Girls, because it, it really does a great job of kind of uh, retelling what an awful thing that was. Yeah. And that definitely was the most famous um, and most despicable, but they bombed a lot of other people, murdered a lot of other people. There's a um, a couple that live not too far from um, where my place in Florida is um, named uh, Harry and Harriet Moore, whose house was bombed by the Klan on Christmas mm. Eve. They chose Christmas Eve because they knew that their, I think their older children would come home. 
They wanted to kill as many of them as possible. So this, there, there was a, a real reign of terror that the, the Klan was carrying out during the Civil Rights era. And Birmingham apparently was um, called Bombingham for a while yeah. because it was just um, so prone to being bombed, like where the, the, the church was bombed. But also um, because it was where the Klan was the strongest and most politically backed up, which, to the civil right um, leaders' credit, they said, well, then we're going to Birmingham. That's where we're going to set up shop, which made um, is what brought Birmingham to basically the forefront of the civil rights war. Yeah. Uh, you know, there were some other high-profile events, the assassina- uh, assassination of Medgar Evers, obviously, the uh, Mississippi burning case. If you saw that movie, again, it did a really good job of the case of those three civil rights workers mm-hmm. uh, in 1964 who were killed. Uh, and, you know, there were still lynchings going on and, and uh, there were still people in seats of power, uh, attorneys and people on juries. And it was it was a, a very uh, it was a very mixed up time in this country because rights were being achieved uh, while all this bloodshed was going on. Yeah. And like you mentioned before, it's like they're trying to hold on to this thing that is um, not what America is anymore. No, it's like TS America is a multicultural society and it's better off for it. Like let's just all get on the trolley, shall we? Yeah. So um the FBI, it's worth mentioning, played a dual role. Apparently J. Edgar Hoover knew all the way back in nineteen sixty five who carried out the um sixteenth Street Baptist Church bombing, but just sat on it because he wasn't like a really big fan of civil rights. Yeah. Um, or the civil rights movement. But at the same time, the FBI actually did have an integral role in breaking up local Klan groups by using like COINTELPRO, um, that program where they would basically infiltrate and start getting people to question the leaders or start accusing each other of disloyalty and just turn a group on each other like what they did to the Black Panthers, they did to the KKK to far less frequently, but they did have an impact on helping to to break up the KKK in the civil rights era as well. Yeah, and since the civil rights era kind of to today, um, the Klan has really lost a lot of its membership. Um, It has been, and that again is not to say that any of the racism went away. It's been fractured sometimes into more dangerous uh, groups. Um, further uh, alt-right white, white supremacist groups and neo-Nazis. Um, there have been people in power. Uh, David Duke, you know, we have to mention him. He was an actual House member um, from the state of Louisiana. Um, he was the grand national grand wizard of the Klan. Mm. And uh, I think they started to kind of push away a little bit from the symbology uh, of, you know, these kind of, crazy symbols and the hoods and the cross burnings. I mean, that stuff still went on on local and state level. But I think nationally, they kind of tamped that down a little bit and was like, I think it'd be better if we could just hold office. Right. Quietly. So, and that's basically, there's a direct thread to today, this idea where they're just trying to soft sell um, racism and suppression of minority rights. Um, and it just repackage it in other ways, but it's all the exact same thing. And it, it doesn't matter how you dress it up. You're trying to um, deny the rights of other human beings. So it, it, say whatever you want. To hell with your ideology, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, totally. It's um, there. There's never been a good handle on the numbers because it hasn't been a super organized national thing. But um, they think it is down to like less than thirty thousand now. And mm-hmm. when they do these specials and kind of go to these groups, the meetings, you know, in these towns are a number in the single digits. Sometimes it's not. Yeah, it's not like hundreds of guys getting together. Uh, and of course, there are women in there now. I keep saying guys, but it's it's largely always been men. Because they call them clansmen, but uh, these wives are getting involved as well, so they can have something in common with their husbands. Yeah, and the the good thing is, is the numbers are small enough that um, basically local communities are strong enough to come out and chase clan yeah. rallies, break them up. Um, as was the case in Madison, Indiana, on Labor Day in 2019, the clan said that they were going to have a cookout. And apparently about 10 of them showed up and the entire Madison, Indiana community, or not the entire, but a significant portion of them showed up and basically chased the Klan out of the public park. Awesome. Um, and broke up their rally in 10 to 20 minutes from what I read. That's that's usually par for the course. And then the Klan is relegated to basically just spewing hate online or, like you said, leaving flyers on people's cars. So um, the Southern Poverty Law Center says that they they have been tracking their decline and they think they may have plateaued. Um, which is not good because you like to just keep seeing them decline, but they've they've bottomed out, in other words. The problem is is there's no lack of other racist groups um, that are are equally problematic, if not more so. Yeah, there's one part in this uh, news special where this kid, there are these two guys dressed in their robes and uh, putting up a flag in their front yard or whatever, a Confederate flag and then one other, um, I guess, Klan flag, and... This teenager in St. Louis comes across the street or whatever suburb they're in, and it's just like, "Hey, man, white power! I just want to, I just want to see what you guys are all about." You know, I'm really interested in joining up, and and these guys talk to him for a minute, and it's just like, it's so troubling to see this dumb kid, you know, r- reaching out in all the wrong ways because he's been taught something, right? You know, yeah. And when you see the, this family, he's in these people's homes, and there's five, six year old kids sitting around and and the wife's got a cigarette and she's taking a shot of bourbon and she's got her Mountain Dew in her hand and spewing hate and these children are sitting there and you just want to like, you want to run in there and steal these kids. I know you're not supposed to say that. (laughs) You just did though. But I just did. It's awful. Yeah. It is pretty awful. Anytime you're talking about hate, it's awful and it should be. It should turn your stomach. I hope this episode turned everybody's stomach. It is learned stuff. Almost cussed. Oh, totally. That's how, yeah, that's how it is, yes, for sure. We already did one on hate before, didn't we? Maybe <laughs> we should do a redux on it. I don't know. I got one more quick thing that's kind of always, I always thought was kind of fun at, uh, on a lighter note. At baseball games, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure the history. I should look that up. But a strikeout when you're keeping log oh, yeah, is known yeah. as a K. Right. And fans have bring K signs and they hang up with the pitcher is known for a lot of strikeouts. Yeah, one for each strikeout. Yeah, right? one for each strikeout and they hang it up in the in the stands in front of their seats. And they have always hung that third K upside down. Yeah. Uh, as per tradition. So it never says KKK, which I think is great. Yeah, it is great. Way to go, baseball fans, sticking it to them. Way to go, baseball fans. Uh, well, uh, you got anything else? No, nothing else. If you want to know more about the KKK, go visit the Southern Poverty Law Center. They have some really good research on it, uh, including some where you're just like, this is just just pathetic. Um, it's kind of reassuring in some ways. Uh, if you're bothered by this, maybe that'll help. And since I said that, it's time for a listener mail. 
Uh, let me see here. I'm going to call this Ezra the Podcaster. Hey, guys. My name is Ezra. I'm 14 years old. I've started a podcast of my own, and it is inspired by your show. I'm doing a school project on my podcast, and I would love it if you could respond with a couple of your tips for beginners. My podcast is called High School is a Joke. Uh, I listen to you every day, and it would mean a lot if you responded and even mentioned me in an episode. Thank you for always making me laugh. To be more knowledgeable at the dinner table, you guys are really cool, and I want to let you know that you've inspired me to start my own show. Sincerely, Ezra. That's awesome, Ezra. Congratulations. You got any advice? Well, I'll give you the advice that I found is the best of all time, and that is just talk about stuff that you find interesting, because even if people aren't listening, um, you're still going to enjoy doing it, and that'll make you keep it up. And if you keep it up, then other people will start to notice and come around, and next thing you know, you'll have an audience. That's great advice. Yeah. Stay away from the clan. <laughs> That's even better advice, Chuck. <laughs> Everybody, whether you're a podcaster or no, steer clear of the clan. Yes. Don't even talk to them. Well, if you want to get in touch with us like Ezra did, you can send us an email. Send it off to stuffpodcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 